you go ahead and start, if you would, uh, Dennis. I've got a couple things I was going to say, but I like them on the tape as well. I'm always moved to see the children saying it's, it's such a, an honest, simple, guileless sound, happy, uplifting, positive. Christ told us we had to become as little children in order to enter into the kingdom of God. Children will believe almost anything you tell them. I'd say it until they reach a certain age, they'll believe anything you tell them. You can tell them a flat fat man can come down the chimney and leave all kinds of gifts and climb right back out the chimney. They'll tell you he came in there with reindeer that fly and carry a sled through the air, and one of them has a lollipop neon nose. They believe a fairy will leave money under their pillow. They'll believe rabbits lay eggs, fancy colored eggs at that. You can tell them anything, they'll believe it. But somewhere we lose that, don't we? Somewhere we become cynical, sarcastic, unbelieving. Perhaps part of it is because some of the fairy tales we're told as children don't turn out to be true. <clears throat> and they'll tell us all kinds of things and make all kinds of promises, and many of those promises don't get fulfilled. Or we have to wait until they are fulfilled. So over a period of time, we become doubters. Oh, yeah. Sure, sure. We have expressions we use. After the fight, when pigs fly, you know, showing that we simply don't believe something. We get more and more that way. By the time we're 80 years old, somebody tells us they've discovered a pill that will give you the fountain of life and you'll be 20 again. Sure. I couldn't remember to take it. <laughs> if it was true. And on and on it goes. And I'm not just saying these things for no reason. Let's go back to the book of Hebrews again. He's trying to convince some Hebrews who still had doubts in their mind about Messiah or the Savior who came. They were being converted, but they had trouble what? Believing. They had seen a lot. They had heard a lot. They'd heard sermons and preaching. But they were still having trouble believing it. They weren't as little children who would believe. A story of a man who came to the earth born of a virgin. Now there's one to swallow to start with. Who never ever sinned and 33 and a half years approximately on this earth. Not even once. And then that he died. And was resurrected. Now doesn't that strain your credulity a little? That's an incredible story. 
What if you had been walking the face of the earth in those days, and CNN had come on with a story like the one I just recited? We even have trouble believing it when they say they found his casket or his vault and that of his mother and Mary Magdalene and his children when it comes on CNN, don't we? Yeah, we do have trouble believing that one. I think with good reason. But if you start broadcasting a story like that today, there's an awful lot of cynicism that will crop up and a lot of disbelief. This is quite a story that Paul was trying to get across to these Jews. And I just wonder if we believe it, or if we believe it, how much we believe it, how much motivation it gives us to do what we need to do. Maybe we lose sight of that sometimes, so it's difficult for us to accomplish what we need to accomplish in overcoming, growing, changing, and being like Christ today. Maybe we believe it, but how much do we believe it? And how much does that belief transfer into our lives, our everyday thinking, and our actions? There's a question. So he just recounted in chapter 2 what Christ had gone through and how God had made him for a little while lower than the angels, all the suffering he had been through, and that that would teach him so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest to us upon whom the ends of the world would come. We have to believe he's there. We have to believe he did what he did, that he is merciful and that he is faithful, and that he will never leave nor depart from us ever. The only question is if we don't believe him enough and depart from him. That's the only danger. <clears throat> Let's pick it up in chapter 3. Wherefore, considering these things which we just rehearsed briefly, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, do we believe, sitting here, this day, that God himself, far above, among the stars of the universe, on the sides of the north, where his throne is, that he looked down on this earth of six and one-half billion people and looked at you and said, I am going to open that one's mind. I believe that one will obey me and I can make him a part of the bride of my son. It is a calling. John 6, says, No man can come except the Spirit of the Father call him. It is an individual matter. He looked down upon us, man or woman, and called us individually. Now, he called enough, knowing that some would not heed or answer or believe. So that when he got done sifting, he could choose a few that really would believe it. Which are we? 
those who believe it, to the calling and the salvation of our soul, or those who believe it a little bit, but not really. Not enough to transform our lives. A heavenly calling. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Emmanuel. He's our apostle, one to lead us places we have never been. He is our high priest to forgive and show mercy when we stumble. When you go places you haven't been, sometimes you trip and you fall and you stumble and you need help. So this is a heavenly calling from the very highest being in the universe, but he knew it would be difficult, so he sent us an apostle to lead us and a high priest to forgive us. What more could you want? Who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. Now he's using some buzzwords of the Jews. He refers immediately to Moses. And he's showing them here that this one was higher than Moses. That this one was faithful to God. And though Moses had been faithful, here is someone more important than Moses. He had drilled that into the apostles at the time of the transfiguration. Here's Moses and Elijah. But the real one to listen to is my son. That's the point. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who has builded the house has more honor than the house. This man built Moses' house. He's the one that sent the burning bush to Moses. He's the one that trained Moses, tested Moses, brought Moses back, and caused the miracles in the land. Moses didn't do that. This man did. So Moses was an important cog in the machine. But he wasn't the one that made the machine or the house. So they needed to get their minds off Moses and on Christ. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. <laughs> you know, you can build a little house out here, but God built the universe. Now, let's, let's get our perspective right here. Moses truly was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. Moses was there. He's to be referred to by those who speak things later on. And indeed, Moses was referred to by David in the Psalms. He was referred to in the New Testament. There are references to Moses all through the Bible because that was a singular, important, pivotal event in the calling of Israel to be a bride of Christ at that time. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house are we? We're not under Moses' house, we're under Christ's house. This is more important, this is bigger. Whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Will he find faith when he returns to this earth is a question he posed. 
In Matthew 24, it says that those will be blessed who endure to the end. It doesn't do any good to believe God for a while and then drift away. You have to protect that belief. That belief has to grow. It has to get stronger, not weaker. Because God may not do something right when we want it done, does that mean we need to quit believing Him? Or are we here to develop patience, understanding, and wait for God to do the things that need to be done? We would not have had to wait and grow in patience had the tribulation started in 1972 and Christ returned in 1975. We expected that, and we began to realize it wasn't going to happen. It threw some people. But apparently we needed to learn a whole lot more after that. We needed to wait a long time. But we have to hold fast the confidence. You don't have much confidence in something you don't believe, do you? Somebody makes you a promise. Say, I'll be there at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. And every time they've told you you'd, they'd be there at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning, they've showed up at 8.30 or 9 or 10 or not showed up at all, you would begin to wonder if they were telling you the truth when they said, I'll see you at 8 tomorrow morning, wouldn't you? You'd begin to, at some point, not believe it. You'd lose confidence in them. Now, God has never told us how long it would be. In fact, it says in Isaiah, there is no man among us who knows how long. Somebody brought me a paper not long ago that says, this is the day, this is the year, saying, I know how long. And yet, Scripture itself says no man knows how long. So I'm not going to put any stock in that, because it might be wrong as we were wrong in 72 and 75 and 82 and <laughs> every year thereafter. This could be the year. Well, yeah, this could be the year. But by now we should have learned never to say this will be the year. We can still say this could, can't we? And even this one could be, I don't mean for the return of Christ, there are too many things that have to happen. But some of the things we might be expecting now, we think, well, maybe this year. And it's okay to do it like the Jews do who say, next year in Jerusalem. They've been saying that for thousands of years now. And one of these years, <laughs> it'll be right. Next year in Jerusalem. Let's hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest is love, but faith and hope are right there as one of two of the three greatest things. Without hope, the people perish. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, as Proverbs says. But we have to hang on to hope. If we don't have hope, things are pretty bleak. Verse 7, Wherefore, 
as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. So he goes on to recount some of the story of Moses here. Don't harden your hearts. What was their problem back then? They simply just didn't believe God. I'll deliver you. I'll take you away from the Egyptians, and you'll see the Egyptians no more, and the Egyptians drowned. And immediately, they thought God had brought them out there to die. How quickly they lost hope and confidence, and their carcasses were scattered in the desert. Forty years till they all died, and their children went in, except for Caleb and Joshua, who did believe. So this is written to the end-time church, referring to the story of Moses. Verse 9, When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Now God was going to test and try them because they didn't have the confidence and the belief, and yet they spent that whole forty years testing God which indicates they didn't really believe him. So every time they turned around, they said, you going to deliver us now? You going to let us die now? You going to give us water now? You going to give us quail now? Oh, you gave us manna, but it won't be there tomorrow. <laughs> I better go out Saturday morning, see if I can find some. No, I told you it wouldn't be there. I told you it would, and I told you it wouldn't. They didn't believe in me at the time. He got tired of their testiness. He got tired of them trying to tempt and test him, who had done incredible miracles for them. Now you say, we haven't had incredible miracles. Oh, yeah? Opening your mind to the truth in a sin-sick, darkened world is an incredible miracle directly from the Father in heaven. I have seen people healed when calls went to Pasadena back in the 50s. I've seen my children healed when they were anointed. I've seen other people's children healed and other people healed. We didn't give them any pills, we didn't give them any drugs, didn't give them any chemo, didn't give them anything except a little oil on the head and a prayer. Healed just like that. Doesn't always happen, but I've seen it many times. There are conditions God gives us, and there is a time and a place, and it will come again. Meantime, God is testing and proving us. I was grieved with that generation, verse 10, and said, They do always err in their heart. They have not known my ways. What does he tell us in Jeremiah? I will turn to you when you seek me with your whole heart. It's always a heart problem. We all have heart trouble. It's always an attitude problem. It's not necessarily a technical doctrine or a Greek word problem. In fact, it's rarely that. It's a heart-mind-attitude problem is what it is. 
But we don't really believe God. We don't really believe He has our best interests in mind. So we question Him. Why haven't you done this? Why haven't you done that? Why didn't you do it the way I wanted it done? I of all wisdom and understanding and selfishness and greed and envy and whatever else. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Because they were testy, because they didn't believe, because they always questioned, they could not accept the word of God, he became angry and says, they're not entering in. They're going to wander around out here till they fall in the dirt. I won't forget my promise to Abraham. I won't renege on it, or my promise to Moses for that matter. So I'll let their children go in, but I won't let them go. Now we have a little different situation. Now we have a generation that God has called, and there will not be another generation that he will call prior to the return of Christ to this earth. He stated very clearly that this generation will not pass until these things are fulfilled. That's why all these churches that are going out there trying to preach the gospel around the world as a witness so the end can come are having no success, or very little success. God just isn't doing that. He isn't going there. He's not going to let us die in the dust and not go. He says the latter temple will be formed, and it will be glorious, while there are still old dudes around who can see it and compare. All the old guys aren't going to die, and then the new people build it and compare it. It's going to be the old guys. So it's going to happen soon. Could be this year. <laughs> Some of these things start happening. Could be next year. Could be the year after. We just don't know, do we? There is no man among us who knows how long. Clear, plain, straight, straight from the shoulder statement from God that no man knows how long. So when someone tells you, I know how long, mark it off the list. Because he doesn't know. We have heart problems. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. Take heed. We can't have an evil heart of unbelief. Barely believing is not good because that shows you're departing from absolute faith, trust, and belief in God. We have to read his promises and believe them. We may not be able to get the timing right. I've tried it. A lot of men have tried it. But none of us ever got it right. So slowly through my thick head, I'm getting the point, I shouldn't set dates anymore. I shouldn't try to say, I know how long. You know, little Johnny on the back row, I know. No, I don't. I know it's close, and I know this generation isn't going to die out before it happens. 
but I don't know how long. But because I don't know the timing doesn't mean I don't know the story. And it doesn't mean that I shouldn't believe the story and order my life according to the story. That's what we need to do. Let's not depart from God in His way because we have trouble believing. We're learning some new things right now. Maybe some of them are right. Maybe some of them are wrong. Maybe the basic story is correct. We need to prove all things. And that's what we're working at doing, is proving things one way or another. question comes up, well, why didn't they just write it in Hebrew if they had an alphabet? Why didn't they draw these pictures on the rocks? Well, would you rather write out a long story, scratching on a rock, letter after letter, or if you could say a thousand words in a picture, wouldn't that be easier? And all, I can draw a picture pretty easy. But if I've got to write a thousand words, it's going to take a while. Might run out of rock, might run out of energy. And two, if it was all written out in a language that could be deciphered and read, then everyone would know why, when, where, how, and who, wouldn't they? But if you write it in pictures, most people won't understand. They won't get the thousand words that the picture is seeking to relate. Christ spoke in parables so that they could not and would not understand and said so very clearly. So why would you write in pictures? So most could not understand. So that someone who could come along and be able to make the rough places plain, to be able to understand what is there, even though most cannot. You see, when we come across something that might be new to us, may have been there for a long time, but it's new to me, you know, there's a learning curve. And it's valid to ask all kinds of questions. I mean, that was a valid question. Why not just write it out so we could read it? Well, I, I think there are reasons why it would not be done that way. But you have to think that through and understand that. God didn't want everybody to know. But you and I know about this book. This book, even though it is written out, is written in code so that most people cannot understand and it doesn't matter how smart they are unless God turns something in their head and opens that mind, which only he can do, you simply cannot understand this word. Now, if he turns the screw in your head and opens your mind, then you have a responsibility to get your head in this word and really, really understand it. With that opening, with that blessing, comes responsibility and accountability. What if you're still standing there when the resurrection comes and you say, hey, wait a minute, why didn't I go? Well, I opened your mind. You stopped there. Well, I understand. I, need, I, have, I know all I need to know. 
Now we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. Never are we to stop growing, learning, becoming more like Him, because none of us are anywhere near what God is yet. And therefore, there's room for growth. There are a lot of people in the church today who will resist anything new. Herbert Armstrong had it all. He restored all, how many ever doctrines they say he restored. That's all there is. He was the Elijah to come, that's all there is to it. Well, all right, he preached. He preached to some of the world as a witness. And he died, and here we are 20-some years downstream, and the end hasn't come. Is there the slightest chance that he was not the Elijah to come, that he didn't understand everything, and that some things still need to be restored? When he died, the end didn't come. When his son died, the end didn't come. They were not the final two witnesses. They had a certain amount of witness in the former temple. But there are two witnesses who are coming, one of them represented by Moses, the other by Elijah, and the job is to restore all things. And when those two die, three and a half days later, Christ is coming to this earth. That's what it means when it says it will be preached as a witness to the whole world, and then the end shall come. Not 20, 25, 30 years later, he'll bid 40. Then it will come. Not before. So let's not have an evil heart of unbelief and begin to eat and drink with the drunken and say, my Lord delays his coming. He hasn't delayed anything. He knows. The Father knows the day and the hour. The Son at this point may know the day and the hour because it may have been shared by this time. He said he didn't know back then. He may know now. I don't know. It doesn't say when he'll be told. But I don't know when you don't know. But it's coming. And that we need to believe. That we must believe and not give up our hope and begin to think, I might as well eat, drink, and be to Mary. Tomorrow we die. It isn't going to happen. Don't ever give up. God's timing is impeccable. It is perfect. He knows precisely what he is doing. I know what he's doing, but I don't know precisely when. I know generally when. I believe. Of course, Paul thought that too, and he was wrong. <laughs> so we need to be careful. But I do believe we're in the last generation. Anyway, what should we do instead of eating and drinking with the drunken? Instead, verse 13, exhort one another daily while it is called today. Now is important. How often should we exhort each other? How often should we remind each other? How often should we talk about these things so that we don't begin to forget and disbelieve? Every day we need to talk about it. We find things to talk about. Sometimes it's each other. 
that isn't the right emphasis. The right emphasis is remind each other every day of why we're here and what we're doing so that we don't forget and then disbelieve. Some have come here thinking God was working here. And then over a period of time, they didn't see it happening exactly as and when they thought it should, and they've left. Now they can. They don't have to believe what we're teaching. And there are lots of organizations they can go to or they can sit on their living room couch. There is that option. But you must have believed something to come here. Are you going to waver because it didn't happen exactly how or when you thought? I still believe it's going to happen exactly like I began to preach it in 1996 in January or February. Learn more since. There's been more added to it, but I still believe it's going to happen because that's what these scriptures say. And because it doesn't happen exactly when you or I might want it to doesn't mean that it's wrong. It's still going to happen. So exhort one another daily. Verse 14, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. We're living like he lived. We're made partakers of his life. He lived for 33 and a half years on this earth and never gave up and never gave in. He believed it so much that he never gave in to one temptation while he was on the earth. He had every temptation, just as real, just as powerful, and just as strong as any of us have ever been tempted with anything. But he never gave up, and he never gave in. Do we begin to comprehend the magnitude of that man? God with us on earth. Well, it is said today, verse 15, you will hear his voice. Harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. They heard his voice through Moses. They heard his voice from Mount Sinai. They said, oh, don't let him talk to us. Man, he talks too loud. We'd rather listen to Moses. He kind of stutters and stammers and fumbles around, or really would rather listen to Aaron. He's a little quieter. He doesn't get on our case. Doesn't spit fire at us. Don't harden your hearts like they did. Don't disbelieve like they did. It's a matter of heart and mind. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. Howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? It was just simply a matter of not believing it. He said, follow this cloud, follow this fire, do what I say, everything will be fine with you. They didn't believe it. And to whom swore he that, he should, that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not. You're not going in. Forty years isn't very long to God. It's a long time to somebody wandering around in the desert wondering where their next meal and their next water is coming from. He could wait. So we see 
today, you and I see, that they could not enter in because of unbelief. That was the reason. It wasn't doctrinal understanding of everything. It wasn't Greek or Hebrew words. It was unbelief. That is far worse than not having every little doctrine correct. Those we work on, but the big thing is we better believe it. And if it's revealed to us, we better follow it. All right, let's go to chapter 4. Let us therefore fear. That's where wisdom begins. <laughs> you begin to fear God. You begin to believe Him. That's where wisdom starts. Lest the promise being left us of entering into His rest, any of you should seem come to come short of it. The ultimate rest for us, is the kingdom of God. Now, he's promised us rest and peace in a place of safety, and even before that, in towns without walls, where he will protect us from the evils that are about to come upon this nation and this world. We've seen all kinds of those promises throughout the Bible. You heard some of them in the sermonette today about being strong, being of good courage, fear not, and work. You're not going to work if you don't believe. So if you're not working at it, that should tell you that you don't believe it enough. We can all sit here and say, I believe. <laughs> I believe isn't enough. You've got to believe it enough to do something about it. Somebody says, I'm going to walk in and start shooting you. Ah, you're crazy. You're not going to do that. You don't believe it until he comes in and starts shooting at you. Then you start to begin to have a little wisdom. Fear. <laughs> I'm out of here. What will it take before we believe? What will it take before the church believes? Most of the church is not even scrambling through the Bible trying to find out why and what has happened. Most of them think, Hey, life goes on as usual. Herbert Armstrong didn't finish it. We got to. That's as deep as they think. That's as far as they go. When something really bad happens, don't you begin naturally or normally, if you're normal and natural, to begin to look for the answer? Why did that rock fall on my head? Well, maybe it's because I was standing under this ledge and there's loose rocks up there and the wind's blowing. Hmm. I think I'll step back. Something happens, you, you, you'd kind of like to know why. But when you're asleep at the switch and something happens, you think, hmm, that was uncomfortable. Roll over. Go on sleeping. Now, when God shakes up his only true church on the face of the earth and scatters it like pins before a bowling ball, shouldn't we look up and say, Ben, why'd you do that? Scramble through his word to find out why he did that. You going to do it again? Are you going to keep doing it? When are you going to stop doing it? 
Well, maybe when you go in my word and see that it says you've been asleep and lay it aside and lazy, and it's when you get your heart on fire and begin to serve me with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, I'll ease up. Oh, wow. Maybe I better get busy. Didn't he tell us he would spew us out if we were lukewarm? Well, if we're part of the spew, then we might not say, hey, spew, he spewed you. Maybe we should look around and say, he spewed me. I must be lukewarm myself. We come to the wrong conclusions. We cling to our righteousness. Our view and our image of how wonderful we are as servants of God, and I believe. Well, you don't believe very much, or you'd be seeking Him with your whole heart. We have a heart problem. He caused those to die in the desert because they didn't really believe him. That's the bottom line. And Paul is warning those here who say they believe him, and these Jews were some pretty skeptical people, and they were beginning to say, I believe him, but Paul could obviously see they didn't really believe or things would be different in their lives, so he gave them this book, this letter, to help them see God and Christ. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as to them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. If you do not believe things you cannot see, you cannot please God. We'll see that later on in this letter. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. So believing on the level that a lot of people think they believe is not near enough. I'll show you my faith by my works. Works are not done away. Faith is more important than works. But it is works that show you believe that you have faith in things you cannot see. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, now he's talking here of the weekly Sabbath, we enter, we enter into a weekly rest because we believe the story and we believe there is a thousand-year time of rest coming, and that the weekly Sabbath pictures that, and therefore we keep it as a memorial to what is going to happen soon. And it shows our belief. But some will say, well, I'll lose my job if I don't work on Saturday. That shows their job is more important to them than picturing the rest for the world and for themselves when the millennium starts. Don't believe it. We who do believe do enter into rest every week. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. 
God laid the plan out before he ever even established this earth, what would happen and how it would go, how it would come down, how it would eventually end up. He could predict that. For he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. Quoting Genesis 2, 2. God knew how this thing was all going to turn out, and he established the seventh day and said, this is the day for you to rest as he rested, and it will look forward to a time of peace to come. The Jews always looked forward to the time Messiah would come, and bring peace, safety, and rest to the whole earth. They believed that concept. It's just that when they came, they didn't think he was it. They didn't believe it. Didn't believe him. Oh, but he's not talking like Abraham or Moses. Well, that's right. He was more important than Abraham and Moses. They couldn't see it. To this day. They still look to Abraham and Moses and are expecting Messiah to come for the first time. They still don't believe he's come and walked this earth. Talk about a long span of disbelief. Seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Verse 7, again, he limits a certain day, and he's already said that that's the seventh, saying in David, today, after so long a time, as it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. The Bible says it, believe it, live by it, do it. For if Emmanuel had given them rest, and I will substitute Emmanuel, I'm trying to get used to that because I really want God to be with us in this end time as we face the day of the Lord not far ahead. Joshua was fine, or Jesus, however it should be used or pronounced, for them. God is salvation, it's a long plan. For us, the trail is getting short. For us, they're going to turn against us and kill us soon. We need God with us. We need him specifically with us in this time. And knowing who that is and having him with us is going to be far more important than he who comes in this last day saying he is Jesus and is not. Saying he's going to save the world, and he won't. Going to have a new world order. Going to have millennium on earth. I, Jesus, say so. Wrong Jesus. If he doesn't take that exact name, I'll be very surprised. Might not, but it just seems to fit what Satan would do. And that's all they have anyway, isn't it? Is that name. They don't do anything he says. They despise him. They've rejected his commandments, his laws, and his ways. They accept the name, but not the way of life. They hate it. The name doesn't do you any good if you don't do what the man says. What good does it do to call on Abraham or Moses if you don't follow them? What good does it do to call on Jesus if you don't follow him? Throw all his teaching out and say the name's good enough. That's all I need. That's like a woman saying, give me your name. 
but I'm not going to do anything you say. I want your name, but let's take obey out of that ceremony. <laughs> I believe Jesus, I want to marry the Lord, but let's take obey out. Let's just live by grace so that we can live in the light of his face. Yeah, but what if he wanted you to fix dinner? What if he wanted you to clean the house? What if he wanted you to bathe the babies? What if he didn't want you to spend him into bankruptcy? And you did all those, did or didn't do all those things he wanted you to do. Would you stay in grace in the light of his face? I really rather doubt it on a human level. So why is it that we think that we can take the name and say, I'm a married woman now, I'm married to Jesus, and then not do anything he said? Is he going to be happy? Or are we going to have a divorce down here somewhere after the fight? Now there was a woman who said she'd marry him in the Old Testament. She'd love him and obey him and do everything, everything you've said we will do. Set it before the mountain. Anything you say, we'll do it. Just marry us. All right, we got a deal here. So he married her. And she didn't do anything he said. He divorced her. They, didn't, they just didn't believe him. And now we have a new Catholic Protestant view. Well, they said they had obey and they didn't, and he divorced them. Now, we'll just take obey out and we'll take the name, be married to him, and everything will be fine. Is that crazy or what? He says, I will marry a bride now who will do what I say who will please me, who will believe me, who will serve me in the way that I wish to be served, not in what she wants to do or not do. That's all he's looking for, is just somebody to believe him and do what he says. It is so simple. That's all he wants, is a bride who will serve and love and be a helpmate and training the world in his way of life. You've got to believe him. He lays out the marriage ceremony. He lays out the conditions of marriage. And if we accept those, he expects us to live up to them. It's that simple. If you will enter into the life, keep the commandments. If you reject my commandments, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. That means that the whole Protestant world, the whole Christian world, is a liar and the truth isn't in them. And they will not enter into life. There are a billion, more or less, Christians, so-called, on this earth. And there are about a billion Christians who will not enter into life when Christ returns. That's the bottom line on it. There will be 144,000 who read the ceremony, accept the ceremony, and have shown ahead of time they will live by the ceremony. 
He's not going to marry us and then start training us. He is going to train us and then marry us. Let's not get the cart before the horse. He's already had a backsliding heifer who said, I'll follow the lead and then planted all four feet in her tail and has been dragging back ever since. Read Hosea. Out of six and a half billion, there are only a billion that call themselves Christian. Out of the billion who call themselves Christian, there are probably, counting the true ones who have died, 8, 10, 12, 15, 20, 30,000 on the face of this earth who are truly headed in the right direction, are faithful. No more than that. And it may be much smaller than that. Don't harden your hearts. Verse 8, For if Emmanuel had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. He was speaking of the future when he returned. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. So he, if he's just talking about the weekly Sabbath here, he's preaching to the choir. These Jews had always kept or sort of kept at the Sabbath. That's not what he's trying to explain to them. He's using the weekly Sabbath to show them that there's a bigger meaning and something to come that the Sabbath represents. He's not trying to explain to people here that they shouldn't keep Sunday. These Hebrews didn't anyway. There remains, therefore, a rest to the people of God. Verse 10, For he that is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works, as God did from his. If we see something in the future, a thousand-year rest for the people of God, then we have to change our way of living and repent of our own work and follow his work. Do what he wants done, not what we want done. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It wants to do whatever it wishes when it wishes. It wants to be comfortable. It wants to be pleased. It wants to be satiated. It wants to be full. It wants to be warm. It wants to be drunk. It wants to be asleep. It wants to look good. It wants to be better than its neighbors and richer. It's enmity against God. Let's repent, cease from our works, and look forward to that time when we will be living God's way in his kingdom. That's the forward-looking message here. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. Work at it. The Protestants don't say you have to work at it, do they? He says, labor to enter that rest. Protestants say, all you have to do is believe the Lord. Get a little water sprinkled on your head. Once saved, always saved. You don't have to work at it. There are no works. Paul must not have understood that. Let us labor or work to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. You mean you can fall from grace and salvation? Yes, you can. Now, Paul wrote those things that people don't understand and rest out of context 
to say you don't need works. And truly, you're not saved by works. You're saved through faith and by the unmerited pardon and grace of God because none of us will ever live up to it no matter how hard we work. But that doesn't mean we don't need to work at it. And it doesn't mean that we're saved and can't fall. Because he's warning them here that though they had embraced the salvation of God, they didn't work at it, they would fall after the same example of unbelief as did the Egyptians in the wilderness. Now how far out of entering the promised land did Israel fall? How far? They plumb missed it. Totally missed it, didn't they? They fell because of unbelief. <clears throat> For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The sword of God can cut through all the manure that you try to throw up there. All the self-deceit, all the deceiving of other people and you thinking you're something or trying to make other people think you're something you're not. <coughs> the Word of God cuts through all that stuff. I'll be delicate here. <coughs> and gets to the truth. You can't hide it. It goes right down to the very marrow of your bones and cuts through to the thoughts and intents of the heart. You see, it's a heart problem. I keep coming back to that. God discerns our attitudes. He is not going to be deceived. Now you can deceive yourself very easily into thinking you're something better than you are and thinking you're smarter than you are and thinking you understand more things you don't understand. But if you compare them to this word, you'll find out that every man is a liar. <clears throat> Verse 13, Neither is there any creature that is not man manifest in his sight. He sees it all. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We can dress to try to hide what we are. I guess we've got two ways to go. We can dress to brag about what we are. Or we can begin, as we get a little older, to try to dress to hide what we are. And spiritually speaking, <clears throat> when we're young in the church, we might think, boy, I'm really something, and we want to show off how righteous we are. But maybe as time goes on and we begin to see that we do have sags and wrinkles and cracks spiritually, we begin to try to hide what we are rather than change it. You know, there comes a point where I've been fighting this so long I could just kind of give up at it and try to hide it. There's only about so much good a belt will do. <laughs> you know, that's, just, that's about it. 
but you can't hide it from God. He sees through it all. So you have to either really become righteous or be found out. You might hide it from man, but you can't hide it from God. We're all naked in his sight. Isn't that a pretty picture? We're open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Can't hide anything from him. That ought to put fear in us right there. Because we don't always think what we always ought to think, and we don't always do what we ought to do. We don't always have our heart absolutely believing that his way is right, and therefore we're going to do it no matter what. I'm going to do it right if it kills me, said Daniel, said Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, said Paul, said Peter, said James, said Isaiah, and I killed them. They're going to live forever and ever in glory. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Emmanuel, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Hang on like you're in a flood hanging on to a log. Hang on as tight as you can. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows how human how weak, how small we are. He's been there and done that. He knows what it's like to be a human being. And it isn't a pretty picture. Very, very difficult to go against everything your body, your mind, your emotions cry out for, isn't it? Very hard to go against it. It's almost impossible to flip channels with a remote when you start seeing and hearing evil. It's almost impossible, isn't it? Well, I'm interested in that. Almost impossible to turn off a cheating song, ain't it? A drunk song. A drug song. It's almost impossible to wear clothes that are modest when they have those that are so tight and so short at one end or another that they make you think you look good in the mirror. And they make you look like a junking, walking trash heap. Gordon called it a walking junkyard last night because of the ornaments and the tattoos and stuff, but trashy's another style. It's hard to do things the way God would do them, isn't it? Not easy at all. Really not easy to change your diet completely, is it? We've been eating junk for so long that we resist, and it irritates us. And some of us are beginning to get a little bit irritated right now. He said it enough. It's just so hard to give these things up. You know what it is? 
It's a heart problem. It's a matter of whether we believe God when he says the temple is the Holy Spirit, or is the, 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 our temple, our body, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he makes it very, very clear throughout the Bible that we are to respect and not defile his temple. <clears throat> Don't put anything into it that is unclean, anything that defiles, anything that tears down or destroys or makes sick. Don't wear anything on it that makes it look cheap or tawdry or seductive. Make sure that the way you dress is not seductive in any way. Dress modestly. That's hard for us to grasp, isn't it? We don't want to believe that. If we got it, we want to flaunt it, don't we? Or if we think we got it, we want to flaunt it. It's a temple of God. I'm not trying to tell you thou shalt not here. I'm trying to tell you you have something special here that needs to be taken care of so that it might show the glory of God when people look at it. Not the glory of Sears or TJ Maxx or whoever has clothes. For we have not and high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Was he tempted as a young man to wear a sleeveless t-shirt and show off his muscles? Yes, he was. When he saw a pretty girl walk by, did something come up inside him where he thought, ooh, wow, that's nice looking? Yes, it did. He even had the feeling of, I'd like to touch that. Didn't he? But he didn't. He had every temptation known to you or me and never once gave in to it. It isn't that the thought didn't go through his head. The thought went through. Otherwise, it wasn't a temptation. A temptation automatically infers a desire. I'm not tempted to eat something I don't like. I can tempt Al Johnson with tomatoes every day of the week, and he will never, ever be tempted. He has no desire for tomatoes. It's not a criticism. There might be something I don't like, and I'm not tempted to eat it. It ain't donuts. Because I'm tempted. <laughs> now, there are certain things I desire, but they're not good for my body, the temple of God's Spirit. Either as an ornament or as something to put inside it. So I need to be very, very careful how I treat the temple of God's Spirit because it can be a glorious temple and it can live forever and ever when changed. 
and be a beautiful blessing to everyone. So, we don't always have to do the thou shalt not. Sometimes we need to see what can be and treat it with respect the way it ought to be. See if that fits a little better. Seeing we have that kind of high priest who cannot be touched with a feeling of our infirm... Or, or, we, let me start over. Verse 15, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with a feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. There are people who would just be all up at arms about the things I just said, about him having wrong thoughts go through his mind, or temptations, desires that came to his mind. Why, he wouldn't think that. He had to think it to be tempted. We don't have a high priest that wasn't tempted just like we are. He never let it stay in his mind. He put it out. Whatever he was tempted to do. And he was tempted in all points like we are. You have never been tempted to think or do anything. But he did not have go through his mind as a temptation or a desire that welled up in him. Even when he was hanging on that stake, having gone all the way through 33 and a half years of living without ever giving in to sin, he was tempted to say, I don't belong here. I'm dying for their sins. Forget it. That's why he went out in the garden and fell on his face and sweated blood. Because he was tempted to say, Father, I'm out of here. Bring me, beam me up. I want any more of this. That was a tough temptation. He was 33 and a half years old in the prime of life and didn't want to die. And he certainly didn't want to die the way he had read in Psalms and Isaiah he was going to die. But all his meat muscle would be stripped off and he could look down and count his bones and have thorns in his head and know that at some point there was going to come somebody with a spear and ram it up into his guts. That was not a pleasant thought. And he was very tempted to say, let's just call this off. I'll come back and we'll live together in peace and happiness, Father. Forget them down here. Let us therefore, all right, based on what he was willing to do for these temples of the Spirit of God, what are we supposed to do? Sit around and whine and say, I don't want to? Bless me now? Do everything I want? Give me what I want? Verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
you know there's someone who understands. There is nothing that is bothering you, there is nothing you are tempted to do, that he hasn't been there and done that. He's lived through it. No matter how hard it seems to be and how difficult, he's been there and done that. It was just as difficult for him as it was for you, as it is for you. There's no difference. He's tempted just like us. Therefore, we can look to him who never gave in and who is sitting by his Father's right hand in glory and say, give me help, give me strength. We don't have to come whining and muling and not believing. He's been there, done that. We can come boldly before his throne and ask for help in time of need. I'm having trouble with this. Help me! Strengthen me. Give me power. Give me courage. Help me not to fear, but to believe you and believe that I'll rise off the face of this earth someday and be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye into God. You wouldn't have called me if you didn't believe that could happen. So give me what I need to help me do that. That's the kind of prayer we need to pray. Let's quit the whining for things we want. Let's go in boldness and faith and courage and belief that he fully intends, and it will be his good pleasure to give us his kingdom. That it is his will, and he wants us to be there. And therefore, we need his spirit, his power, his courage to do the works we need to do rather than give in to our weak, whiny human temptations and please ourselves. Come boldly to the throne of God and receive help in a time of need.